0: We are looking at Genesis chapter four today, uh, so I encourage you to turn there. Uh, last week, we looked at Genesis chapters two and three. I, set, I think I set a new personal record of preaching through two chapters uh, at one time, uh, and so in one setting, uh, maybe not at the same time, but in one setting, uh, Genesis two and three uh, together last week. Um, in those chapters, Genesis two and three, we looked at the garden story, I called it act one of what became of the heavens and the earth that God created. You remember there's this structural statement in Genesis. It's repeated 11 times. It's translated, this is a generation of. And it marks out the different sections of the book. It starts in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, this is the generation of the heavens and the earth. This is what became of God's good creation, the heavens and the earth. And so it starts with the garden story, which is a story about paradise gained in the garden. That's what I call Genesis 2, paradise gained. And then Genesis 3, paradise lost, paradise lost. After an account of the creation of man and woman and the garden paradise that God had given to them, we find out uh, uh, from Moses how he describes that a tricky snake comes into the garden and he ruins everything. The snake, the serpent, which we find out from other texts of Scripture that is is embodiment of Satan, um, he first starts by questioning God, and then he flatly contradicts him. You will not surely die. And then Adam and Eve sin. When they sin, of course, what Genesis 3 tells us is all of God's creation, the entire heavens and the earth, are cursed and punished by God. Now, in the middle of all those consequences that we, we find in this garden uh, are, is the fact that after Adam and Eve sinned, they're driven out of the garden. And Adam's job, you remember from last week, was to keep or to guard the garden, to keep it holy. And he's replaced. He's replaced by a mighty cherubim. The cherubim now guards the garden to, to keep people from getting to the tree of life. But in the middle of chapter 3, we learn that one of the consequences is that there is a new enmity that is formed. And it's not just between Satan and God, we knew that already, but the new enmity that's formed is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now in act two, outside of the garden, we'll learn today of the progress of these two communities the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter four will be represented by Cain, murderous Cain and the descendants that come from him. Whereas the seed of the woman will be recognized in Seth, one of the other sons of Adam and Eve and his descendants. Now I thought uh, as we start, you might wonder why I would call Cain Cain the seed of the serpent. And so I wanna take a few moments with you to establish this for you. I wanna show you this in two ways. First, we know that Cain is the offspring of Satan or the serpent because of the way the New Testament authors think of him. I'll give you just a few examples. First, we come to Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes in Jude verse 11 about Cain. And what Jude says in that text is not very flattering for Cain. Jude describes various forms of false religion as, quote, the way of Cain. Okay, so for Jude, the half brother of Jesus, false religions, false approaches to God outside of Christianity, that is the way of Cain but perhaps more clearly and important for our text is what the beloved disciple John had to say about Cain. John uses Cain as a negative example, and he has some very harsh words regarding Cain as well. You don't have to turn there. I'll read these two texts to you. Maybe you write down the text, and you can look at it later. But in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, listen to what the beloved disciple says about Cain. He says, for this is a message that we have heard from the beginning. It's like he's calling us back to in the beginning. This is a message that we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. That's what the beloved disciple says about Cain. He was of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. Cain was of the evil one, Satan that ancient serpent. And actually, it's Jesus himself, when confronting the Pharisees in the Gospels, has similar things to say about them. Remember one time when Jesus is approaching them, he, he looks at them, and he calls them this, he says, you are a brood of vipers. Where does Jesus get that theology? The Pharisees were a brood of vipers. And then Later on, he makes it even more abundantly clear. He says, you are of your father, the devil, the father of lies. So it seems to me that as I turn forward in my Bible to the New Testament, the New Testament authors understood that unbelievers are of the seed of the serpent. They follow after Satan and his lying and deceiving. So Cain himself, I think, is the first biblical example of an unbeliever who is of the offspring of Satan. As a matter of fact, I think Moses himself points this out to us back in Genesis. So you're in Genesis chapter four. Have you ever noticed that in the opening chapters here, Moses connects Cain with the serpent? Say, Pastor Brent, where do you see that? Look first in Genesis three and verse 14. Genesis three and verse 14 in the middle of that text there. God is putting a curse on the serpent, and what does he say to the serpent? He says, the Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, because you have done this, and, and here are some important words, cursed are you. Two words in the original, ata. cursed are you. Now move forward one chapter and look at Genesis four and verse 11, the first part of that chapter. And now, and here are these words again, You are cursed. Same two words, aurorata. Same exact expression. First time about the serpent. The serpent is cursed. Satan is cursed. But so too here is Cain. Cain is the first human being cursed by God and this connects him directly with the serpent. And so today we're gonna look at Genesis chapter four. Now, in most Bibles, if you look at Genesis chapter four, like my, my Bible has a heading. And in the heading of this scripture, you have the name of two brothers, Cain and Abel. Most people think of Genesis chapter four as primarily focusing on these two brothers, Cain and Abel. But I want to suggest to you, before we get into this text, I just wanna do this quickly, that Genesis chapter four is a chapter that is primarily not about Cain and Abel, but about Cain and Seth, the third brother. Okay, let let me point this out to you. I think that this chapter uh, uh, follows along, and there are really two stories here. The first story is about the main character, Cain, and it runs from Genesis chapter four, verse one through 24. The second story is about about Seth, he's the main character, Character in the story, and it runs very short passage, verses 25 and 26. And although they're disproportionate in length, Moses arranges them in the same way. Let me show you. First, both of these stories have a birth account. So look in your Bible at Genesis 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This story of Cain starts out with a birth account. Adam knew his wife Eve, a son is born, the son is named, and then Eve gives a statement that gives her perspective on it. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now it's interesting as you go to verse 25 in the second story that it starts out the same exact way. There's a birth account. Look at verse 25. 25, Genesis 4, 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. You see, this starts out with a birth account as well. These two texts are arranged. These two stories are parallel stories. Adam knows his wife Eve, a son is born, the son is named, and then Eve gives her perspective or makes a statement about the birth of Seth. Not only that, both stories, the story of Cain, the first part, and the story of Seth, both stories have sections about worship in them. So one of the first things you find in Cain's story, after some information about Cain and Abel, you find that they, these two boys go to worship the Lord by giving offerings to him. And so for verses 3 through 7, you have a section about worship. Now, at the end of the passage, at the end of verse 26, in the second story, you have a passage about worship as well when it says, at this time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Are you with me? You following this? I think this is chapter is about Cain and Seth. Okay, it's a, it's a tale of two communities. Okay, The seed of the serpent, Cain and his descendants, and Seth, the seed of the woman, who eventually bring destruction to Satan and a seed. Both sections have worship in them. And then finally, I just point this out as well. Both sections have genealogies. Genealogies. Don't you love when you come to these sections of the Bible? So-and-so fathered so-and-so and so-and-so and -and and -and so-and-so. You live 943 years and then 372 years and you're just so tempted to skip over them, aren't you? Well, in both of these stories, we have a genealogy. Cain's genealogy is longer. It goes from verses 17 through 24. But even in verses 25 and 26, his story about Seth, there's a genealogy. Seth begets Enosh, okay? Talks about his son. And that genealogy, by the way, is picked up later in chapter five and further developed like Cain's. And so this chapter is about Cain and Seth. I call it the Cain-Seth story a tale of two communities outside the garden. Now you might be wondering, why should I listen to this sermon then? This is an ancient sermon about two men that lived years and years ago. Why should I pay attention today? I would say that you need to pay attention because everyone here today fits into one of these two groups. You are either of the woman or of Satan. Today, you'll be able to compare your life to these two communities and ask, do I evidence more characteristics of fallen humanity in my life, sinful humanity, or humanity that's redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? And if you are redeemed by Christ, you should ask this question as we go through this text. You should ask, have I reverted back to act like Cain and his offspring in any way. I think the reality is that many of God's children fall into ruts where they act like fallen human beings in the choices that they make. And so let's begin our look at this story. I wanna look at the seed of the serpent first, verses one through 24, Cain and his descendants. And so I think this section emphasizes four characteristics of fallen human beings outside of the garden. This again is something I think that we should look at and compare our life to. The first characteristic is found in verses one through five. Look with me at verse one. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Here, the first characteristic of the seed of the serpent, of fallen human beings outside the garden, is that they only offer to God convenient worship. They only offer convenient worship to God. So after the accounts of Cain's and Abel's birth and a note about their occupation, Moses quickly moves to describe a day when the brothers brought an offering to the Lord. Now, for my view on this text, if you're gonna understand it, You need to understand that the word offering is very important to my view on this passage. And I know, I know, when I'm messing around in Genesis two and three or Genesis four, I'm talking about the Cain Abel story. I know we all have different views on this, okay? So if you disagree with me on this, you know, it's gonna be okay. You really need to reconsider your view. Uh, Just just kidding. Uh, Well, not really, but anyway, um, we can disagree a little bit, but from my view in this text, I hone in on the word offering. The word offering is the Hebrew word minha, which is later used in the Pentateuch of both animal sacrifices and offerings and sacrifices of grain or plants. So the word offerings here can be used of animal, animal offerings or grain or plant offerings. Now, instead of seeing these offerings from my perspective as sacrifices for their sin, in Genesis chapter 4, I believe instead that what you see with the offerings of Cain and Abel are free will offerings, gifts that the two men bring to the Lord. So I agree with one scholar, just so you see, I'm not all by myself here. His name is Victor Hamilton, and he said each man brought an offering appropriate to his occupation okay so I'm, I'm suggesting that perhaps there's nothing wrong inherently with Cain's sacrifice now sometimes people condemn Cain here Cain here because he does not bring a bloody sacrifice Okay, and this is where I know, like, some of you hold this, and I know that you've got good texts that you use that talk about the importance and the necessity of shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. I get that. However, I think in this text, we are getting a description not of a sacrifice for sins, but a free will offering to the Lord. So both men bring free will offerings to the Lord. One from the fruit of the ground, the other from the sheep of the field. In itself, I don't think this is a sinful choice by Cain. Okay, so you're kind of with me so far, maybe. You're like I'm about ready to cut you off, Pastor Brent. But then you, you you ask, you get down to verses four and five, and you say, "But why then did God have regard only for one of the offerings?" and not for Cain's offering from the fruit of the ground. Why did God have a problem? And I think that there are other good reasons to explain this. There's a whole host of them, but I I like to combine two of them. And I think that the scriptures testify to this. Now, before I tell you what I think on this, I, I think we all need to admit that Genesis 4 doesn't come right out and tell us. It doesn't come right out and explicitly say, this is why God rejected Cain. However, I think there's some hints in our Bible. One of which is found in a book we just finished going through verse by verse, book of Hebrews. And if you remember Hebrews 11 and verse four, it talks about the sacrifice of Abel and why it was accepted. Let me read it to you, Hebrews 11:4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died, he still speaks. That is, Abel's internal heart attitude was one of which God approved. Abel trusted God, he believed in God and out of that personal faith, he brought to God this free will offering and worship to him. Unfortunately, this same statement is never made about Cain. No New Testament author or Old Testament author ever says that it was in or by faith that Cain brought his offering. Now, in combination with Abel's internal heart attitude uh, here, their heart's condition, we also discover a clue back in Genesis. Okay, so look again at verse four and let me read it to you. Genesis 4, 4. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Later in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, we're told explicitly what types of offering and sacrifices the children of Israel were to bring to God. And here's what they were to bring. Number one, the firstborn of their flock and their fat portions. Number two, the first fruits of their crops, the very first of their harvest, the best that they had. Unfortunately, with Cain, we do not read that he brought of the first fruits of his crops. With Abel, he brings the firstborn. But with Cain, there's nothing of that. And so I think Abel's heart was something like this. I think Abel says, God, you are more important to me than anything in life. God, I don't want to bring to you something bad or inferior. I want to bring to you something really good. The very best that I have, the firstborn of my sheep without any impurity. I think that was the heart of Abel. But Cain's heart was something like this. I don't really want to do this. I know I have to give God something because Abel is. I don't want to give God something good. Uh, I know I will give him something that's going bad. Something withering, not the first produce. Maybe something out on the edges of my field. I think, men and women, this reveals to each of us something very important that we should consider about the seed of the serpent. And that is what you offer to God in gifts and offerings often reveals the true condition of your heart. Did you get that? What we offer back to God in our gifts and offerings often reveals the condition of a heart. Perhaps you're here today and you'd be redeemed by Christ, but in your giving, you have reverted back to look more like the seed of the serpent, Cain. And so I ask you a few questions. Are you making excuses why you can't give extravagantly to God? Do you make excuses to your spouse about why it's not a good time for your family to be giving? Well, one day, honey, we'll have the money to be able to give. Lord will it? Or sweetie, uh, you know, we're not under the law of Moses. You know that, right? We're under grace and God doesn't really need our offerings anyway, right? Because he's never at the end of his resources. Or perhaps you, Only give small, insignificant gifts to God that don't really cost you anything. It's more like the seed of the serpent. Or do you give gifts only because your parents expect it? You think, oh man, I know I have to give something. I don't really want to do this, but my parents keep asking, so I've got to get them off my back. I'm going to give. Consider these modern applications for us today. I just say this, you might make your parents happy. You might appease your spouse, but what you need to remember is that God had no regard for Cain's offering because what Cain offered to God revealed the true condition of his heart. Men and women, the Lord wants you to believe that nothing, nothing is better than God. And he wants you to give confidently in faith that he will provide everything you need. So as I'm looking at the characteristics of the seed of the serpent, the first one is that they offer to God only convenient things, convenient worship. That leads to another characteristic in the middle of verse five through verse eight, of those who are the seed of serpent. Look at verse five. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you do not do well, sorry, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Here, the second characteristic of fallen human beings outside the garden is that they do not properly care for others. That's my second point. They do not properly care for others. So after Cain makes his offering to God and God rejects it, God warns Cain in this text. He says, sin is crouching at the door, kind of personifies it here. He animates it. Sin is like a lion or like some beast that is is ready to pounce at the the door of his den. He's ready to get you, Cain. But instead of changing his offering and bringing a better offering to the Lord, changing his heart, his perspective, Cain's... Face falls, the text says. And he gets very angry. And yes, that word very is reflected in the Hebrew text. Not just angry, he's very angry. He gets so angry that he goes out into the field and he kills his brother. We don't know why. I I guess we do know why. We, We don't know how Cain did this. But Cain is so full of resentment and bitterness, he commits the first homicide recorded in the Bible. So I was reflecting upon that this week. I was just thinking, you know, there was no impersonal way way for Cain to do this. He couldn't take a bomb and set that off and be nowhere around. He couldn't take a gun even and be at a distance from his brother. No impersonal way. Instead, Cain applies personal force to hit his brother, or strike him, or crush his brother in the field. See, instead of mastering his sin, Cain murders his brother. So the second characteristic of those of the seed of the serpent is they do not care for others properly. They hate, abuse, hurt, kill others around them. That leads us to a third characteristic. Look in verse nine, verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here to cover his sin, Cain starts first by lying. He most certainly knew where his brother was. And then he asks a question to deflect suspicion and personal responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? So we learned that a third characteristic of fallen human beings outside of the garden is that they cover their sins as long as they can. They cover their sins as far as possible. And so just like Adam and Eve in the garden, here Cain tries to dodge and deflect responsibility for his own sin. And that leads to a fourth characteristic, a final characteristic of the seed of the serpent found in the rest of Cain's story. And we can pick up the pace here a bit. The fourth characteristic is that fallen human beings outside of the garden respond to troubles in their life in self-centered or self-preserving ways. Now we're gonna see this in Cain's response in verses 10 through 16, but then we'll also see this in the life of one of his descendants in verses 17 through 24. So let's look first at Cain. Look with me at verse 10. It says, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your, your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is, be- be- is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. <coughs> I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on, our- on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain, or so God confronts Cain here. I find it interesting the way he does it, he uses the same question he used with Eve in the garden. What have you done? Then God explains that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground to him for vengeance. And so God punishes Cain. Specifically, he uses a very strong term to describe what he does to Cain. He curses him. He curses him, meaning that Cain will experience utter condemnation under the wrath of God. He also explains that life will be more difficult for Cain. The ground won't produce in the same way and that Cain will forever wander throughout the earth under the curse of God. But what I want you to draw your attention to is something that really stuck out to me is in verses 13 and 14. I want you to see Cain's response. And in this response, I want to suggest something to you. Let's see if you agree with me. I want to suggest that Cain is not really broken about his sin and that he's not repentant. You say, well, where do you see that, Pastor Ron? I say, look for the words I, me, and my in verses 14 14. Uh, actually, verses 13 and 14. So let me, let me just read it again here. Ready? And I'll emphasize them to you. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wonder on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Here's seven times, as I count them, in Cain's response, he talks about himself. And what, what I think is educational for me is he never talks about other people. He doesn't talk about Adam and Eve, for instance. And the pain this must have been for them to lose one of their sons to have one of your sons kill your other son. He never talks about the pain that this brought to Adam and Eve, his parents. He also never talks about Abel. How about him? What well, the sort of death that he experienced and the pain that he must have felt. He never talks about Abel either. Cain has no concern for others, only himself. One preacher said it this way. I listened to him this week. He says, Cain cares only for Cain. When you consider even the nature of that response at the end of that verse, I think Cain, the way I get a picture of Cain here, Cain is like, One of our children who is more broken about the nature of his punishment or her punishment than she is about the sin that she committed. You know, you remember this in parenting? (laughs) I I just have vivid memories. I'm not even gonna go into which child it was, okay? I remember confronting one of my children about hurting. Well, I'm gonna give it as one of the three, her brother. And you know, there really wasn't much remorse. It was almost like, well, he had it coming until I mentioned the punishment. I'm gonna take your iPod away for a while, okay? And it looked like someone shot her. It's like, oh. I remember the first time this happened, I thought someone hurt my child when I wasn't looking. Like, what What just happened? Why are you screaming? And the question is, where is that remorse over the nature of your sin? He's concerned with your punishment. We see that in Cain's life here. He's concerned about the nature of his punishment. It's too much. And we can see his self-focused when, like, for instance, at the end of verse 14, he says this, and whoever finds me will kill me. I mean, how ironic is that, Right? The man who killed his brother is concerned that one of his relatives might kill him. It's completely self-preserving and self-focused. But then somehow, from the depths of the grace of God and out of according to his eternal purposes, God spares Cain. Swearing vengeance upon anyone who would touch him, God even gives to him a, an external mark of protection. Okay, now, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I don't think we know what the mark is. But somehow through this mark, God delivers Cain. Although Cain is self-focused, God delivers him. But this self-focus doesn't stop with Cain. It, it digresses to one of his most infamous relatives. Let's look at verses 17 through 24 to learn more about his descendants self focus Look at verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore J- Jabal. He was a father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was a father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and, sister, and, and, and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. So in this passage, Moses traces the line of Adam down to a man by the name of Lamech. This is through Cain, seven generations. Come to this final character, Lamech, we find out soon that he is a wicked man who composes a taunt song about killing someone. I want to point out just a few things to you about Lamech that stood out to me. Four things here, four characteristics of Lamech and his self-focus, his self-preservation. First, I just point out that Lamech is the first polygamist in the Bible. First man who, who married multiple wives at the same time. Earlier in the creation story, God made his expectation very clear. You remember back in Genesis 1? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his, finish it for me, his, are you awake? His wife, not wives, wife. So the scriptures teach singularity in marriage unless one of the spouses passes away. But Lamech was not content with that. He's not content with just one wife. He was the first polygamist in the Bible. But second, I point this out about Lamech. Lamech was also an abuser who intimidated his wives. Not only did his wives, Ada and Zillah, have to put up with the humiliation of polygamy, they were also the audience of his abusive taunt song. They're the ones he addresses it to, the ones he sings it to. Lamech's point is no one crosses Lamech and lives. Like how he addresses himself by name, Lamech's wives. Here, the wives of Lamech. His point is no one crosses Lamech and lives. And I'm sure the abuser's point was not lost upon his wives. What a horrible, wicked man. But then third, we learn that this wickedness grows even darker for he was also a murderer. Some young man had injured him or bruised him. And so Lamech violently takes this man's life and he sings a song about it. You see, Lamech is just like his great, great, great grandfather, Cain. Lamech is a murderer. And then finally, I point out as well that Lamech was also a blasphemous an arrogant man. He not only composes a song about his violence, he he also takes God's place as an avenger. Later in the Bible, God is gonna say this, or we have some words that come from God that say this, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord God of hosts. Here, Lamech threatens 77 fold vengeance on anyone who threatens him. Back up in Cain's story, God says, if anyone hurts Cain, I will afflict him seven times. Here, Lamech is not content to allow God to do it. He says, I myself will inflict 77 fold vengeance. So this whole line of people here from Cain to Lamech is framed really by two homicides. It starts with a brother killer and it ends with a revenge killer. And things digress between the brother killer and the revenge killer. So at the beginning with Cain, you move from deflecting words and questions in response to that to a blasphemous song that boasts in the murder of another human being. And so men and women, that's the seed of the serpent. They offer to God only convenient worship. They do not properly care for others around them. They cover personal sins as long as they can. And they respond to trouble or punishment in selfish, self-preserving ways. Let's however, end on a positive note and look at verses 25 and 26, and just see very briefly the seed of the woman, Seth and his descendants. Look at verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring, another seed, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Here the woman believes that this new little boy, Seth, will be the one through whom God will fulfill his promises regarding her seed. And Seth in this passage indeed lives long enough to produce a son. And the text says that it's at this particular time that people begin to call on the name of Yahweh. I think this note at the end of verse 26 represents a a brief ray of hope for humanity. This is the oldest reference in all of scripture to someone worshiping Yahweh. Found anywhere in your Bible people are beginning to understand that they must call on the name of God for reconciliation and for deliverance. Men and women, as we close our attention to this text and we think about how it relates to us, I would say this, I would say that the identifying mark of the people who are the seed of the woman is that they are the ones who call on the name of the Lord deliverance. As one keeps reading in their Bible, this becomes even clearer. So for instance, in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, he says it this way, Romans chapter 10. You ready? Paul says, if one confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses confesses and is saved. And then he wraps it up this way. This is just a powerful way to close by Paul. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so as I wrap this sermon up and I think about everyone sitting underneath the sound of my voice today in this field, I know that there's some of you who perhaps should be alarmed because you feel like Cain and his descendants. You feel too much like them. And what you need to know is that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take your place, to take away your sin, so that if you would believe in Jesus Christ today and turn from your sin, you would be restored by what the New Testament describes. The New Testament describes that You'd be restored by the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is, you would be forgiven of your sins. Remember the blood of Abel? It cries out for vengeance, judgment, punishment, but... The New Testament describes the fact that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and that through his blood you could be forgiven of all of your sins. So perhaps there are some here today who have never believed the name of Jesus, never repented of your sins. There's nothing more important for you. Would you rather be of Satan and his seed or of the woman? And join those Thousands upon thousands of people who throughout history have called on the name of the Lord to be saved. I trust you'll do that today. Perhaps you're here today and you've called on Jesus before. But now, as we read about the seed of the serpent, Cain and his descendants, you find that you, re- you relate too well to Cain and his offspring in different areas. You've reverted back. Won't you ask God to forgive you of that today? Perhaps you give grudgingly to God, not extravagantly, not from a full heart that treasures him more than anything else. Or maybe you don't properly care for others around you, others close to you. Perhaps you cover your sins with deflecting questions and lies or you respond to God's punishment in your life with more concern about yourself than the others that you have hurt. I close this way. As the seed of the women, as those who've called upon the name of the Lord and have been saved by his precious blood, won't you ask God for grace? Grace to offer him our very best, our very best efforts and things. And won't you ask him for grace to love others around you well and reflect the change that was worked in your heart through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. (coughs) This chapter gives a tale of two communities outside of the garden. The seat of the serpent, the seat of the woman. As you consider your own heart, have you called upon the name of the Lord? And are you acting in such ways that reflect the nature of that change? Father, our prayer is that you would be everything to us. We pray today that we would so value your grace and mercy and love and splendor and glory and worth that we would recognize that you are worthy of everything that we have. Our best efforts, our best gifts. And we pray as well, Father, that we would have sincere love for others around us, that we would actually love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, do this, Lord, in our church. Do this in every heart in this field. Through your spirit, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.